Welcome to the Sex Cafe podcast. Today we're going to talk about lesbian and other same-sex loving women. With me today, as always, we have a deluxe panel of speakers from UCF and around the Central Florida community. As usual, I would let my guests introduce themselves, who they are, and what do they do in the organization they represent. I'll get started with Andrea. Hi, my name is Andrea Gorney. I'm a uh, licensed therapist. I practice as a virtual therapist. I also work in Osceola County. I provide LGBTQ resources and information and support to individuals within Central Florida, Florida in general, and sometimes even outside of Florida with the virtual therapy aspect. The majority of individuals that I work with are LGBTQ, so I work with plenty of uh, transgender, primarily transgender individuals, and also a good chunk of lesbian individuals as well. Do you work with any particular age groups or is it all across lifespan? Pretty much all across lifespan. I do practice a little bit of play therapy as well. And I've actually encountered children as young as age 10 that I identify as anything other than cis heteronormative. Mm -hmm. Good, that's interesting. I can't wait to hear more about your experiences and your work you do with the community. To my right, uh, I have the Lindsay team. Let's start with Lindsay Newberger. Okay, great. Um, so my name is Lindsay Newberger. I'm an associate professor in the Nicholson School of Communication and Media at UCF. And my area of research is health communication and risk communication. So mostly how we make messages to get people to do things that are good for them um, or good for society. So. I am, uh, what I say, I, ca I call myself a toolkit person. I'm not a context person. I have a skill set around uh, helping people make effective messaging. And so I'm not someone who only works in HIV AIDS or a person who only works in LGBTQ health or a person who only works on infectious disease. It's like, what's the emergent issue? Let me help you tackle that. Um, so I've worked in diverse contexts in that work. Um, I'm also the vice president of the Pride Faculty and Staff Association at UCF, so involved in our uh, LGBTQ community here on campus. Wonderful. Great to have you with us. And last but certainly not least, we have another Lindsay in the team. Um, I'm Lindsay Taliaferro. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Population Health Sciences in the College of Medicine at UCF. Uh, my background is in public health. Uh, particularly adolescent health and development. My research primarily focuses on the prevention of suicide among youth with a particular focus on LGBT. Wonderful. It's very nice to have all of you here today. Can we get started to telling our listeners what are we drinking today? I got a uh, hot chocolate today. This is Andre. The Lindsay's are keeping it simple over here. <laughs> Just classic water on the side of the table. Stay hydrated. That's important. <laughs> To get us started with today's topic, uh, let's talk about what do we know about the development of sexual orientation in women specifically, since today we're going to be talking about lesbian and same-sex loving women. Well, I guess from a, obviously I'm the researcher, <laughs> so a lot of my um, comments are research-oriented, so we do know that adolescence is a time of identity development in general, experimentation. So. Research does show that youth are more likely sometimes to report same-sex sexual experiences and attractions and might not identify as anything. I have nieces who don't want to be labeled in any part of their lives, and so that can be something that youth um, don't have 
an identity or the identity, sexual identity might not match their attractions or behaviors. Uh, we also know that actually youth are more likely to identify as bisexual uh, than gay or lesbian, especially females, looking at the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Um, the females are more likely to identify as um, bisexual than lesbian and in comparison um, to the gay males as well. So that was interesting. I pulled a interesting statistic as well where when I was looking it up to uh, particularly looking at trans lesbian individuals I saw that about 81% do not identify as heterosexual in any way so so that's fascinating there's a the most recent data that i found the other day for a for in a, a class that i was preparing for uh, the students of social work uh found it was not even the cdc it was a gallup poll and what was interesting about that statistic was that they broke it down by age groups so they had traditionalists baby boomers millennials exennials and actually you can see how exponentially people who do not identify as heterosexuals are increasing to the point that millennials and probably speaks to what you were mentioning Lindsay that millennials do not identify as any label so it was 16.1 percent do not identify as anything uh, but within that, those who put a label, uh, the majority was bisexual or, or used the label bisexual, and they're relatively younger, right? So what are some interesting aspects about social health that we should know in the, perhaps in the, among the youth and in the identity development process? 43% of transgender youth have been bullied on school property compared to 18% of cisgendered youth mm -hmm. and 29% of gay or lesbian youth and 31% of bisexual youth have been bullied on school property. So definitely as, as youth are exploring that sense of identity and that sense of independence, definitely if it doesn't match a, a cookie cutter idea or a cookie cutter mold of what is expected from youth, definitely that can have an impact on bullying as one of the issues that we could address. There are some important consequences of that bullying, and, and I know Lindsay's uh, research focuses a lot on bullying and suicidal ideation, right? Right. So we use uh, the minority stress model as kind of our overarching model, um, examining how you know stigma, discrimination, prejudice creates the hostile, stressful environment. Uh, which can increase the risk for some negative mental health outcomes among sexual minority individuals, youth in particular. So we have these distal stressors that are experienced in the environment and that then can create some proximal stresses, so internalized uh, stigma, negative expectations and messages that then can lead to increased risk for mental health problems. And I'm looking at um, non-suicidal self-injury and suicidality among youth. And so it's always important for us to say it is the external environment that is increasing the risk. It is not anything within the person themselves that is increasing the risk. Um, and so if we change this external environment, and some of our research is looking at primarily uh, protective factors, social connectedness factors, that can help mitigate some of that risk um, and improve mental health outcomes. 
So in these interventions, how does that environmental changes would look like or what has proven to be effective in reducing those risks? So ours is not an intervention study, so we're going to look at that. And one of the things that we are looking at is developmental transition periods. So our young people are 14 to 30, so we're looking at entering into high school, leaving high school, entering into college, going into the workforce, and are there these times when you have a really strong social network that then disappears, mm -hmm. whether you're in high school or college or whenever that might happen, or maybe you have an increased network. Uh, maybe getting away from your parents is actually a huge, great thing. <laughs> and then you get your network. Um, in particular, LGBTQ networks are very important for youth. Schools is where some of our young people spend the most of their time. Mm -hmm. And so that's where our research is. And that's where we know when you have your gender and sexuality alliances, mm -hmm. hugely helpful, mm -hmm. LGBTQ inclusive uh, curricula, helpful. Um, and it's not only helpful for LGBTQ youth. It is helpful in reducing bullying and feeling uh, and improving mental health of all the students in the school. Oh, that's fascinating. And I figure, uh, Lindsay N, <laughs> with, your re with your research and with your um, communication expertise also, communicating these risk messages, specifically targeting uh, these mental health outcomes has some important impact in the community. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work? For sure, it's really interesting. I'm gonna kind of piggyback on some of the stuff that um, Lindsay was saying earlier because like, I'm gonna be the most annoying person in America right now because normally I'm like researcher hat, I'm, and in this capacity I'm like, gay community member, N equals one, I'm gonna tell you about my experience. So. Um, <laughs> we love that balance yeah, here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to kind of like talk about what you were talking about with the LGBTQ curricula, right? Because obviously it's such a salient issue right now in the state of Florida. Um, I have school age kids and um, with the legislation that's going on around the state about limiting what can and can't be taught in um, classrooms. And I would say that, you know, kids are kids are smart, <laughs> you know, and like you're saying, Lindsay, having these exposures is is really simple. Sometimes I have a third grader who um, they had a lesson a couple months ago about Alan Turing, who was gay. And sh the teacher mentioned that in the process of, of describing uh, the, uh, this historical lesson. And one of the students raised their hand and said, what's gay? And they said, oh, well, he. Um, preferred to be with other men and they said oh okay and then they moved on with their lesson and no one cared right and there wasn't a big to do about it it was just like here is an important part of history you should know about they are eight no one it didn't you know maybe some conversations maybe some bigger conversations were had at home there wasn't anything bigger than that in the classroom I think that's really important like you were talking about Lindsay just really simple like that our eight-year-old can say hey I have two moms and no one you know when they're that young it doesn't really matter um, and it kind of ties back to something earlier too um, that I was hearing about just these generational differences right about kids when we talk to our kids about the kind of you know so-called don't say gay bill um, our first grader who's who was six at the time was like oh yeah yeah that that doesn't make any sense uh, and then he said well one of one of my a kid in my class is gay and my wife said well how do you know that and he said oh he just told me and he said okay what did that look like and he was like well we were on the playground and he said I'm gay 
and our kids said, okay. <laughs> they moved on with their day because they're kids and no one cares, right? And like, yeah, exactly. And what a big difference that is from like, okay, I'm not going to date myself, but back in 19, when I was in school and um, like that wasn't really how it was, right? And so it's important to see that you can have those conversations earlier in kids' lives that just shapes their acceptance of other people and their understanding exactly of identity and not just how they identify, but how anyone else does, right? And it's not just about sexuality, it can also be race and culture. How do you wanna be addressed? How can we be more inclusive of different perspectives? Yes, and that's uh, fascinating because it definitely speaks to what Lindsay is hypothesizing here, that if you change that environment, eventually that internalized feeling of less worth or homophobia or, you know, there's a constant push environmentally to feel that way inside. And that definitely can drive a change within a generation, which is the, the fascinating piece. We're seeing changes in our lifetimes, right? Andrew, what do you see in your consultation every day with, let's focus specifically on youth, on, 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 on lesbian youth that are just in this discovery process and the issues that we're seeing within that discovery process it's kind of a mixed bag i do see parents that you know are kind of more open-minded and accepting and supportive of their kids you know exploring their sexual identities but i also kind of see the contrast to that and kind of mixed opinions out there i remember a nine-year-old once told me that she felt very bisexual and but her parents don't support it but are okay with people existing so kind of you know mixed thoughts and feelings amongst, I guess this was the term older, older millennials too, in that respect, or um, Gen Xers as well. And yeah, I, I just kind of found that interesting as well as, you know, talking with several students and college students who are, who identify as lesbian or bisexual and some of their feelings kind of growing up and, you know, having one or both of their parents not really being accepting or with, especially with the term bisexuality, what I find interesting is, you know, there's always this push towards bisexual women dating men, but they don't realize that there's a lot of preferences in bisexuality as well, where a lot of bisexual women can actually lean more towards women, too. In the episode about bisexual men and women, we're definitely going to have a, an intense discussion on is, is this a stage, is this a stepping stone to, towards a more defined sexuality? Uh, but certainly it is that period of discovery, right? So perhaps we can see that with this, with this generation, the labels are not a thing and, and they're not defining. And we see that in in other recordings and, and, and the research that we're doing. Perhaps just like race and ethnicity, we see that eventually we identify the way we identify and that's it, keep moving on as you say, okay. <laughs> um, I, I have students who have come to me, hey, I'm an, a DACA recipient and uh, undocumented immigrant okay let's move on how can we support you you still have the same rights as everybody else yeah in the same way can i talk about that for one second like when i first came to ucf over 10 years ago we weren't a hispanic serving institution yet and one of the things was because we had so many actually students who self-identified as white because in their hispanic community they were white right and their whiteness was more 
central to their identity than their Hispanicness in a way, right? And it was really interesting to kind of seeing that process of evolution over time of people realizing like, okay, uh, even within their college years of shifting how they identify, I'm white to, okay, actually like I'm finding my community, I'm realizing this. Yeah, like, of course I speak Spanish at home, everyone, like what am I, you know? But, but really that kind of shifting identity and it's the same, that time is so important for, for people as they're growing up into who they who they actually are, right? To to make that navigation on their own and not have someone say, hey, it's not okay to be Hispanic or it's not okay to be black or it's not okay to be gay or, or trans or whatever else. Um, but it's hard. I mean, growing up is hard as it is to have something about you that feels different or weird, you know, that's not fun. <laughs> what what approaches have you seen to change that messaging to make it more inclusive or more positive i know messaging is within your your realm sure yeah and i don't uh i don't have a, a lot of specific examples for the lgbtq community but all i would say is that really all it takes is caring <laughs> to make the change right i always do this thing in my research this really innovative idea called ask who you're making the messages for, what they want. It's literally the lowest possible thing you could do, but people never do it of like, okay, I'm gonna make an intervention. I'm gonna make a flyer. I'm gonna make a sticker. I'm gonna make a poster. Okay, who is it for? Has anyone from that community looked at it? Like all you have to do is care to take a second and then ask. But the thing is, is that that can be such a giant limiter for people because they either don't care or are well-intentioned, right? And we want to encourage well-intentioned allies, you know, to, to help empower them and not alienate them, but they don't take the time to kind of slow down. Um, and so that's, from a messaging perspective, that is my secret sauce, you know? So I'm giving it away here, my PhD in communication, but it's pretty simple. <laughs> Actually, it kind of brings a, uh, an interesting point that you make. It's all about messaging and, you know, acknowledgement too. A lot of my lesbian and trans lesbian people that I work with, they struggle with parental acknowledgement, you know, parents acknowledging their partner or acknowledging them being with their partner as well. Yeah, and even if you get some of the verbiage wrong, if you're trying, right, that really matters to people. You're not gonna get it right all the time, you're gonna have slip ups, but if you know that you're really putting the effort in, I think that matters to people. And actually, to piggy up back off of it, it actually will have sort of an effect on your neuro connections. Say you're trying to change, get the pronouns right, it makes more of an effort for your own mindset to actually say it out loud or make your own connections verbally rather than kind of being asked to do it or making assumptions right yeah 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 definitely and as we have seen then um without getting deeper into academic theories um mm -hmm. but but the the minority stress model definitely can can illustrate how for example messaging can help change or shape that external environment that eventually gets internalized as you were mentioning andrea as well. Now regarding physical health, have we seen any changes or any differences or any concerns that we may have to try to help lesbian and same gender loving women? So this isn't my area, but looking up, um, there is there are some differences, risk factors. Um, according to the research, lesbians are more likely to have risk factors for breast cancer, yet less likely to get screened. Um, have higher risk for certain gynecological cancers, um, might be more likely to be overweight, uh, use substances um, than compared to heterosexual women. Mm -hmm. 
and then we know the mental health. Which is fascinating because I think in the general community, there's a general thought, and, and we discussed that in the alphabet soup, that because we lump all minorities within the, the LGBTQ plus spectrum, we think of that, that all diseases or all conditions affect everybody equally. But you will see that in that list that Lindsay Candley pulled, there's no HIV higher risk among lesbian and same gender loving women. So that's a, as, as an interesting statistic because we constantly hear, you know, the, the gay community and, and the LGBTQ community and the risk of HIV transmission. But in same sex uh, loving women, that's not one of the top issues in the list. I'd also say that we and part of our research, we are intentionally recruiting lesbian and bisexual women, not lumping them together. Mm -hmm. We do see higher risks among bisexual women. And just going a little bit back to that conversation, some um, bisexual individuals report being not accepted by the heterosexual community or the LGBT community. So that can place them at higher risk for certain mental health problems. So we are intentionally going to examine differences and not conflate. I also kind of want to add to that and say that for HIV infections, trans lesbian, transgender individuals do have one of the highest diagnosis rates, which is why a lot of programs out there like Bliss Health, 26 Health, Spectrum Health, Crew Health offer options possibly to get PrEP or PEP with regards to, you know, avoiding the spread of HIV infection. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a pill that can be taken once a day to prevent HIV. It's kind of akin to taking birth control to prevent pregnancy. It's akin to taking HIV prevention control once a day. What support systems are are in place for women and same-sex gender loving women? So yes, there's a, there's a few organizations out there. I'm sure you both know of the LGBTQ Center that can provide an assortment of resources. Also based on the age range, the Zebra Coalition provides uh, group services and support services for individuals, especially for um, homeless youth ages 13 to 24. The organizations that I've listed a lot of them support the LGBTQ community in general. Um, Bliss Health, 26 Health, True Health, Spectrum Health, generalized healthcare for LGBTQ patients. We will leave those links to those organizations in the episode comments so our listeners can actually reach out if they feel like they can either use their services or provide some support to their services as well. And we will have some of them as well represented here in the in the conversation and uh, they also list volunteer opportunities if you want to be supportive donation opportunities if you want to donate anything from money to your time definitely you can be of support to the system as well is there anything that we can talk about at ucf uh, internally here at the university that either lesbian, bisexual or same gender loving women can refer to i mean ucf is persistently rated as one of the most LGBTQ friendly campuses in the country. And it has been purposeful, right? It's just like any ranking, there are certain ridiculous things that you have to do. And some of them are really purposeful and some of them are really silly for whatever for whatever reasons. But like, uh, we have really great LGBTQ services at UCF, whether you are um, a, a new student or you are visiting campus or you're a faculty member, there are just great networks here. So. 
And I think probably, and Lindsay and I have discussed this very frequently, like the most important part of that is the people, right? Like the great people that we have on campus and building that connection and knowing that you have a community. Like, for example, we just had Lavender graduation the other day. I don't know. I always say I didn't get any free pizza for being gay in college, but I love that we're having free gay pizza for everyone. Like there's always an opportunity to have cool things to connect with other gay students. I'm part of a, a mentorship community for LGBTQ students where I've mentored students over the years. And it's just really impactful, you know, to be able to say to have a student who may still be navigating their identity, to have someone who is a, a little bit down the road to be able to say, hey, you know what? like. You 